It's not about me, guys. <laughs> it's just, tonight is 100% not about me, but I appreciate the support. You already know who my name is. My name is Dylan, <laughs> and I'm on staff here, and I am super pumped to bring God's word with you all tonight. Um, for any of you guys who thought that this weather is better, totally last weekend was better, by the way. I love that snow, y'all. Not every day, but I love that snow. I frolicked in it. It was amazing. Y'all, thank y'all for the huge applause, but I am totally not. I'm to- <laughs> but I am totally not deserving of that, okay? This sermon series is called Common People, Uncommon God for a Reason. I'm just going to give you a list of reasons why I am so incredibly common. Y'all, I was born in South Louisiana, Baton Rouge. The seat, the capital of Louisiana, which means absolutely nothing to the majority of y'all. It is a very common, normal city. I was born six pounds, seven ounces, right in the middle of average. 5.6 is like the the lowest and 7.5, right smack dab in the middle, super average. I went to a super average high school. I got state runner-up a few times, which I loved it in the moment. And as I look back, that's pretty dang average. Um, Y'all, there is nothing special about me, and me being up on this stage does not make me a special or qualified person. The only thing that is qualified on this stage tonight is the Word of God, and that's what we're going to get into. And so I hope that y'all are excited about that, because I am so pumped. So pumped that I typically wear a headset, but my Italian blood starts coming out, and I start swinging my hands, so I have to reserve myself. So just this hand will start going. That's That's how absolutely excited I am about God's Word. And you should be too, because we're in the book of Acts, where we see time and time again, common people being moved by the Holy Spirit to do absolutely extraordinary things. That's why I moved to Cincinnati, not because I'm special, but because two and a half years ago, I went and said yes, put my yes on the table, and moved with about 40 other people to be a part of Mercy Hill Church, which is full of ordinary people seeing the work of an extraordinary God. Over and over again, we see this in Acts. It is one of the clearest pictures. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw a bunch of uneducated common men say the word of God and share the gospel in dozens of different languages, right? Talk about an international ministry. Don't you wish you had somebody that could speak dozens of languages at English Corner? If you can, here's your chance. Go on over there. We want you even if you can only speak English too, of course. This was the killer verse from last week. It says, when the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What separated them was not their individual giftings. It was that they had been with Jesus. This is God's strategy. And so this is where we find ourselves tonight in the book of Acts. Many people are hearing God's word for the first time. Thousands and thousands of people are coming to know the Lord and they are on fire for Christ. It seems like even when people tell them, hey, you can't teach this, they say, we're just going to keep on doing it. That's how powerful. They have simple confidence because an extraordinary God is moving in extraordinary ways. And that's until the devil deploys another strategy that we're going to read about. You see, earlier I talked about my very normal common life. I wish I knew you guys earlier when I was younger so that I could always get a round of applause. But y'all, I 
was and still am very insecure <laughs> about how people, what people think about me, how they perceive me. I never wanted to feel normal. And who wants to be normal anyway, right? We love TV shows where it's the guy with the one ring or the guy that gets bitten by the spider or the, the guy who lands on a foreign planet or new planet. Like we love those stories because it makes us feel special. And we're always told how special and how important we are. I, oh, I love that. But I want people to see me for something of more of what I really am. And so a lot of my life, I, I postured and I pretended and I tried to get into the cool, the cool kids gang. I tried to run with all the awesome people or who I thought were awesome. I tried to serve in the ways where people would think that I'm, that I'm so great. I even got the superlative for most friendly. Um, I, I didn't love that, actually, because I just felt like that was super dorky. So some things turned against me there. But maybe that's how you feel, that there is something you have to prove that you need to posture and pretend so that the people around you view you better than who you truly are. But we're going to see tonight is that that is actually sinning. And God is serious about sin. And he is serious about keeping his church pure. And despite, how, despite our weaknesses, he will continue to make his name known. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32. That's where we're going to start tonight. I have some blue Bibles if you guys don't have one, they're under your seats. Grab them, write in them, take them home, they're yours. Let's start to read. Starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things, any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And when great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This incredible passage shows three main ways that I want you to see how the early church was living as a truly transformed community. First, they were unified. Remember what I talked about when Timmy taught a couple weeks ago? Pentecost, to the, the dozens of different languages that were all hearing the name of the Lord Jesus for the first time. Well, you had people coming from all over the world for this festival. It wasn't just Israelite people, okay? It wasn't just Bearcats. It wasn't just Americans. It wasn't just Xavier or Thomas More Saints or is there any NKU Norsemen in the house? One day. One day we will. We're coming for you, NKU. I was hoping for just one. That's all right. Y'all, it... The gospel brings people together from different ethnicities, backgrounds, economic statuses, all brought together under one banner, Jesus. Ephesians 2.16 says that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that, that it tore down the dividing walls of hostility, reconciling us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And they weren't just like cool with each other either. It says that they were of one heart and soul. Have you ever said that before to somebody? 
The only other time I can think of it personally in Scripture is in 1 Samuel when Jonathan, who's like this awesome warrior Israelite guy, is going to fight a bunch of Philistines by himself, and he's leaving, and his servant's like, whoa, whoa, hold up. Yo, I am with you, heart and soul. This is like a battle-tested devotion of people who have just met for the first time, but they are locked in, right? They are locked in because they have the gospel. They're unified, and y'all, they are generous. I mean, they are incredibly generous. None of us have ever seen generosity like this before. It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, that they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. This church took generosity to a whole nother level. And honestly, this makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) I almost don't want this level of generosity because, you know, I often dream of that little patch of grass that I get to call my own one day, you know, maybe some acreage, see the dogs running out there, get to go fishing, raise my kids out there, be able to travel to cool places, right? Be able to take my kids to whatever college they want to go to. And again, none of these earthly possessions are bad. I'm not saying that if you're going to be a Christian, first thing you have to do is sell everything you own. That's not what I'm saying. But it becomes wrong when I make the accumulation of those possessions ultimate in my life. When I care more about a patch of dirt in this life, when I I know that actually I have an inheritance in heaven forever because of Christ Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. That's when it becomes sin. And this community knew that on a whole nother level, and they put their wealth right where it mattered. They'd already received God's favor, God's grace. It was freely offered to them by the blood of Jesus, and it's freely offered to us as well. Why would we invest in a pile of mud when there is a beautiful sandals resort (laughs) that is just awaiting us, right? That's what the kingdom mindset looks like. So they were unified and they were radically generous. But this is the last one that ties it all together. The center of this extraordinary community was that it rested on the word of God and the gospel of grace that comes with it. In verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Have you ever heard that super famous quote called, Share the gospel and when necessary use words? Anybody heard that before? Yeah, it's like an extremely off-base quote. Never, don't say that to anybody, okay? It's not good. Well, y'all, a few years back, so... Again, grew up in South Louisiana. I'm down there. There was this wicked hurricane that came through. And not only are hurricanes terrible because of the storm surge that it pushes, but on the east side of hurricanes, a little bit of geography lesson here, how the wind blows, it actually kicks out a bunch of tornadoes. So you have hurricanes to deal with, and then if you're on the east side of it, you got tornadoes to deal with too. This one area of Louisiana got absolutely pummeled. Okay, so me and my buddies jumped in my truck. We drove up to this area. A friend of a friend, his house needed some help. And so we spent from dawn till dusk, chainsaws in our hands, like cutting up pine, uh, pine trees that had gotten knocked all over this property, putting them in piles, like lighting them on fire. I 
I mean, it was wet and buggy and muggy, and I, it was I smelled like smoke. I was covered in wood chips. Like I, I was absolutely exhausted by the end of this day. But the hardest part about the day, you know what it was? When as the sun was setting, and I'm sitting down next to this guy and his family, and I feel the Spirit of the Lord prompt me to share the gospel with them. I'm, I'm thinking in my head, yo, where's some more pine trees I can cut down? Like, I'd much rather go do that than go and tell this man of the best news in the world. That he, like the rest of mankind, was dead in their sin, deserving of wrath and destruction because of our disobedience. But because of Christ's love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that I have been saved. And now we have an eternal destination that's so much better than we could ever hope or dream of. Dream of. And it's because God being rich in mercy loved us so much. The penalty of sin is done. But why so often do we shy away from that opportunity to do that? Why was it that I'd much rather go, go chop down more trees than actually share the gospel? But y'all, we do this all the time. If we avoid the opportunity to share the gospel and instead only opt to do good works, the best way I can say it is we're just making people's lives more comfortable on their free fall to hell. It's not bad to do good, good works on earth. It is a good thing to do it. But as you can see in this passage, they were giving everything they had away, not just to make people's lives better, but that it would point to Jesus, who is the truth and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father um, <laughs> except through him. Romans ten fourteen says, How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? The moment we get away from preaching the word of God to other people, we just become an isolated book club. And that has no eternal significance, and it just becomes a bunch of common people, and we leave out the uncommon God. We have to hold fast to this truth. And these guys definitely were, okay, thousands meeting, generous, selfless love. The selfless love of the saints is like going all over the place. The apostles are they're teaching and they're preaching the truth. There's a lot of energy going on. And that's until we get into chapter 5. So flip over to chapter 5 with me. And I want to say this before we dive in. The danger, I want you to see where the danger of the church is coming from. It's not coming from the outside persecution. It's actually coming from the inside of the church. Starting in verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought on, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you got Ananias and Sapphira over here. I doubt that any of you are going to name your children those names. If you do, or if your name is Ananias or Sapphira... I will apologize to you afterwards. The word Ananias, the name means the Lord is gracious. Isn't that a little ironic? The Lord is gracious. But he did not, he wasn't thinking the Lord was very gracious because he was trying to keep some of it for himself, right? The wife's name, Sapphire, Sapphira, is a little more simple. What does that sound like? It sounds like Sapphire, right? It means beautiful, which, you know, 
geez, that's pretty rough on a young lady to be called beautiful, right? I mean, like, what were, what were her parents thinking? It's like she goes to a party. They're like, hey, what's your name? She's like, I'm beautiful. And I'm like, uh, okay. Maybe you should be called humility or something. <laughs> and I want you to hear me loud and clear on this salt company. And this is something that gets so disconnected in this passage. They did not sin because they held back some of the money. We're not talking about giving more here at all. That's not what it is. They sinned because they lied. This is about lying. Look what happened before. Barnabas gives this incredible gift. He's probably being justifiably honored and thanked for his sacrifice. Ananias and Sapphira saw that and they went in on that action. They want the accolades and honor, but they also want to keep some of that cash too. But they pretended, they pretended that they gave it all, that they, that they put it all at the altar right there. They lied. They were being hypocrites. You ever heard that word before? Hypocrisy, hypocrites? It's, it sounds kind of funky, but really it is a direct um, translation from the Greek word hypocritus, which means stage actor. They were acting. They were faking it. It's creating a false perception of one's spiritual character. Pastor John MacArthur, he's out in California. He puts it this way. From God's standpoint, no one is so ugly as those who paint spiritual beauty on faces where there is none. Think about Jesus. Think about his earthly ministry. Who were the one group of people that Jesus did not like to be around? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers. It was the Pharisees. It was the religious leaders. Yes, he loved them, but he was absolutely beside himself that they would paint these facades on themselves in order to have others think more highly. Salt Company, God hates the action of hypocrites. Because this leads to breakdowns in this beautiful gospel community that we just read about just five minutes ago. Because it's no longer about how people can come to know the Lord better. That, that, that when hypocrisy comes in, that's when it stops being like that in the church. That's no longer the main focus. The focus then becomes, how can I use the church to elevate my own life and worship myself so that others can take their eyes off of Jesus and start looking at me? That's what Ananias and Sapphira's sin was. And this, man, this could have gotten out of control and we're going to see how quickly it gets rooted out. Verse 3. So, Ananias, he's got the cash in his hand, right? He says he gave it all. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He's saying you could have done whatever you wanted. There is no commandment of selling all of your property. You could have kept it. You could have given it all away. That's what he's saying right there. And then he continues, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. In this moment, Peter speaks a sharp but necessary truth and love moment. 
He exposes Ananias and a crowd of thousands of people while the money is still in his hand. Salt Company, I want you to know this. Even in our deepest, darkest sins, God knows it. He sees everything. And the sin that we commit will be found out, whether in this life or the next. Now, thinking about Peter real quickly, he had a decision to make, right? I mean, on the surface, everything is going dandy, right? Thousands of people just got saved. People are giving money to the mission of God freely and willingly. But then randomly, almost randomly, he gets this supernatural discernment that Ananias is lying, that he's being a hypocrite. How easy would it have been for him to go, you know what? That's bad. It's bad beat. But let's just sweep this one under the rug. Let's not stir the pot here. Man, I am so glad that he did. Let's keep reading to see what happens to old Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 5. Here we go. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who you have buried, who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This is one of those oh crap moments in the Bible, okay? Is it okay that I said that on stage? Yes, it is an oh crap moment. Talk about a buzzkill. Everybody's having a great time and then... Okay, there goes one, and then three hours later, oh, there goes the other one. The young men are really tired from digging grave sites. Man, Ananias lays his gift at the apostles' feet. His sin gets discovered, and he dies on the spot. Then after about three hours, Sapphira arrives. Okay, what was she doing for three hours? Was she dolling up her hair or something like that? Like, beautiful, was really trying to puff herself up. This is what I think was happening. She was trying to let her hubby deliver the gift. So by the time she got there, the whole congregation would know that they were the ones that were sacrificing so much. Oh, they knew. (laughs) They knew. I bet when she walked in, she was expecting a parade or fanfare or something. I bet you could hear a pin drop when she walked in. Peter sees her and asks, did you sell the land for this much? She was expecting praise, but instead she she was asked why she agreed to test the spirit of the Lord. It's intense stuff, y'all. I mean, does anybody think that this is a little bit too harsh? I mean, it's just a little lie, right? I mean, that's what I thought too. But as I got deeper into this, Ananias and Sapphira remind me of another couple in scripture that we all know quite well. Adam and Eve. You see, they too wanted the glory and recognition. They wanted the wisdom and power, but in reality, they were just trying to steal it from God. We can distance ourselves from these people in the story, but in reality, 
all sin is the same. And to be honest, y'all, all sin deserves that same punishment that Ananias and Sapphira took on in that moment. All of it. So we can try to distance ourselves, but all of us have sinned. All of us fall short. And all of us should have already breathed our last because we have totally disrespected a perfect and holy God. See, when we sin, we attempt to take the glory from whom it is properly due and it must be called out and dealt with. In God's eyes, sin is always a big deal. It is so big that it separates us from God. Perfect relationship shattered because of sin. And it was also so great that Jesus chose to die on the cross for all of it. Now, you could be thinking to yourself, okay, this is going to be bad press for the early church. (laughs) How do you move on from people flopping down and dying at the altar just a, a week or so into this whole ministry thing? Well, let's see what happens in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow may fall on them. Salt Company, one of the devil's best tools is the false notion that exposing our sin will damage us and damage the community. That it is much safer to hide, to bury it, to to lock it away, to say, no, 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 don't, don't look over there. Everything is fine. But look what happens when sin gets brought into the light. What happens? Does everybody go run and head for the hills? No. Unity happens. It says that they were all together. One translation says they were all together in one accord. You know, this is cool. Ancient historians say that this is like the first time that Hondas were discovered, which is really cool. You know, they're all together in one accord. This is real stuff, okay? This is real stuff. I needed to break it up, you know. This is a pretty intense passage. But uh, no, read about it. It's, it's true. Um, y'all, the confession of sin doesn't bring division. It brings unity. The corruption, the sin was physically removed. Now they can continue to grow. Look what else happens. It says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Listen, a lot of non-believers, and this is probably true, were probably super freaked out at what just happened but they saw the byproduct of this removal of sin and they couldn't help but respect it, even if they weren't saved in that moment. Again, y'all know I'm from Louisiana, huge LSU Tiger fan. I am just as happy as the next guy that Nick Saban retired from the realm of college football. Yeah, that deserves a little whoop for sure. But I, gosh, I respect the heck out of him. Honestly, I'm like, can we hire him as our head coach? Like he does, he can work part-time, I don't even care. He's had, such, he's had such a great program, right? I don't like the guy, but I respect the heck out of him for what he was able to do. That's the vibe here. You see, for the world, hypocrisy isn't a sin. It's not even the same. We don't even have the same standards as the world anymore when you're in Christ. Hypocrisy is not a sin. It's just faking it till you make it. 
So you see how the standard gets separated. So people may not agree with you, but they're going to respect the response of what's happened here. And look what happens. After the hypocrisy is rooted out, not only do people have great respect, but now more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The issue has been corrected. The spirit continues to move. And now more than ever, yes, More people are coming to know the Lord after these two people were killed for their sin than ever before. What? How was this happening? How was this possible? Well, y'all, when we believe the lie that hiding in our sin is the safest bet, we start looking more and more like the world. We don't walk in the light. We walk in the darkness. We're not secure in ourselves or in our faith. We're insecure. We want the world to think of ourselves as highly. And we will do anything to make sure that we are not found out or exposed. We see that all the time in our popular culture. Every day you could look, oh, this thing pops up. This thing gets exposed, right? People want to hide their sin. And when the church does that, we look no different from the world around us. But when the world sees a community that lives genuinely, not pretending that that you've got it all figured out, when they see you in your campus groups confessing sin, enjoying one another, like really enjoying time with one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. And here's a huge one as a college student that I saw. When they see that you have joy in difficult times and times of extreme frustration. I know y'all got some messed up professors, okay? I know that there's a lot of complaining going on. Think about how as a new creation can change that entire narrative. Now, people may not be diving to catch a piece of your shadow like it happened here. That is absolutely wild, right? And, you know, a lot of people may just respect you from afar. But I do know this, that some people are going to draw near. Not because of you, but because of what you represent, because of how you have been changed. And that is my prayer for us, Salt Cincinnati. That we would be a community of believers that really do shine in the darkness. And that God would continue to bless us with the joy of having more people step into the light of Christ. So Salt, it's time to stop pretending. Our goal is not to achieve perfection in this life, but instead walk in the, in the way of the one who was perfect for us. Our goal is not to pretend and posture ourselves to think that we're something that we're not, but instead walk in the way of the one who was perfect for us, who died on the cross for us. Our hope can rest in his perfect work. One of the most helpful pieces of wisdom that I received recently was that God isn't interested in fantasy. He's interested in reality. Yes, he's not interested in the pretend hypocritical you. He is interested in the real you. He got on the cross and died with you in mind and with you in mind and with me in mind. 
That is the power of our God. When we pretend to garner the favor of the world, all we do is create a false picture of the body of Christ. But when we walk in the light and we commit to putting sin to death and confessing it, we are what the body of Christ is meant to be. Common, broken people who have been redeemed by a perfect and loving God. And so I just want to spend, as, as we wrap up, um, I'll pray and then I want to give you all just a few minutes just to think about in your own walk, man, where, where am I pretending? Where am I posturing? Where am I trying to get the attention and the respect of the world when in reality it should be the flip side? How can I be secure in what Christ has already done for me? And if you're one of the people in this room that says, hey, I am completely head over my heels with all of this. I don't know what to make of it. Come talk to me afterwards. But I want you to know this. It's very simple. Even when we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. And now you can walk as a new authentic creation. And we want your campuses and your families and your lives to be changed by that forever. So I'm going to pray. And then let's just spend maybe like two or three minutes just in a little bit of introspection. And then we'll continue on in worship. Bow your heads with me. Dear God, this is a awesome passage. It shows your might and your power and your glory so clearly that we cannot avoid the truth that's there. God, you died for my simple, common, average self, Lord, You died on the cross with me in mind. You died on the cross with all of the people here in mind. Why, for those that are redeemed, why would we try to look back and try to get the world's attention? Why are we trying to think that we aren't good enough or that that we can sneak away and hide and live a life of sin that you have totally died for? God, I pray that we would walk out of this space knowing you more, knowing where we fall short, but seeing how you have absolutely changed us by your perfect blood. And Lord, I pray that we would use the next couple minutes to really get real with ourselves and go, where am I pretending? Where can I walk into the light? And finally, Lord, I pray that we would see our sin as disgusting and filthy as you see it, God. And that this community would not strive to be perfect, but instead would strive to just be obedient and more and more in love with the one who already is perfect. Lord, we love you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and for gathering us here tonight. Amen.